The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Coat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, the show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose. It's a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. It's not important right now. If you watch us on our YouTube channel, you'll feel the warmth that I feel because with me today in the SCP studio are a bunch of folks that make cold Iowa day as cozy as a sheepskin rug in front of a, a roaring fireplace. Let him settle around you like a soft blankie. It's M3 AJ Chowdhury. What's up, guys? Good to be back. She's snug as a bug in a rug. It's MD, PhD student Riley B. and Bush. Hello, everyone. He's like a warm pair of slippers for your ears. It's, it's M1 Jeff Goddard. Here to keep you warm, guys. And joining us from the internet, where is she? There she is. She'll melt your cold, cold heart. It's M3, Ananya Manjal. Oh, what is the quote from Frozen? It's like, some people are worth melting for or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, a that's, that's our friend Ananya. Oh, she's she's worth melting for. Worth melting for. So sweet. Do you guys know Olaf is like six feet tall? What? Oh. If you like Google the heights what? of cartoon characters... <laughs> He is, is no longer no, short king to me. So apparently, if you so Google the heights the of eight feet tall. cartoon characters, like Peppa the Pig is seven foot one. <laughs> <laughs> Who did this? Oh, wasn't like somebody Christoph just taller? So Kristoff is like eight feet tall. Yeah, like cartoon oh. characters are just like notoriously just super tall <laughs> because really somebody had a lot of time on their hands. It's so yeah. If you want a little <laughs> chuckle in your days, short coat podcast listeners, just Google any cartoon character and their height. You'll find some wacky heights. Got it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> it's weird. It never occurred to me that to, to do that. But good. That's, that's, what, they, that, you know what, that's what the Internet is for. That's what the Internet is for. Thank you, Internet. <laughs> All of that. the world's knowledge at our fingertips. And some of it might be accurate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, why? Yeah. Why quibble? Why, why worry about it? You know yeah. What I'm saying? It's like, why worry about how Just tall Just take it in, is. incorporate it into your brain. Use it for whatever you will. Source, trust me, bro. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I wouldn't lie. We do have a listener question from Helena. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. Who's trying to make a decision? Take it away, Helena. Hi, I'm a current M2 and unsure of what specialty I want to pursue. We've already been asked to choose electives for M3 year, and while I have some general interests, I'm unsure of how to approach this. It would be great if any M3s or M4s could talk a bit about how they went about choosing their electives, especially if they were undecided about specialty. Thanks so much, and I'm a huge fan of the show. It turns out, Alina, that we have many people who have done electives here. Am I correct? I've done some. Yeah. I have done several. Okay, okay, good. Did you think about, like whether these were tryouts for a future career or did you think of them as just I'm going to expose myself to some well not expose yourself but I'm going to try <laughs> out some new things that I haven't seen before you know what what were you what were you thinking Ananya yeah. how did you do it how, um, how did you pick knowing nothing yeah how did you pick your yeah. to start 
collectives. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think maybe this is a hot take. You don't know what you're interested in. I think what you do know is like what kind of people you want to be around. I think it's like relatively obvious from the onset. So like, for example, I like even without having done a single rotation, I was like, I would rather be around pediatric patients than like adults. So when you're, you know, regardless of what elective you choose, like in, and I, I don't know how, is this an Iowa student? No. Is this a, okay, yeah. So anyway, at our school, like you, there's like seven elect, so there's like certain rotations you have to do. And I, I don't know how similar this is to the person who's writing in, but you have to do like IM, you have to do PEDS, you have to do OB-GYN, neuropsych, et cetera. And then there's like what we call electives or selectives are rotations that are not required. So if you do a certain number of like seven different selectives, so things like dermatology, ophthalmology, ENT, things like that. And so I guess when I was doing it to me, I was like, I would do any of these if I could do the PEDS version of it. And so when I was like selecting it, for me, it didn't really matter. I was like, you know, like I, I like maybe there's a couple I was like, okay, I know I'm not going to do ENT. Like that's something I'm interested in. I don't know how I feel about ophthalmology. I don't know how I feel about the rest. And so I think it ends up being a little bit more, you can make it more tailored. So for example, I like don't, uh, no offense to old men, but I'm like, I don't really want to look at their genitalia all day. So like maybe urology is not my patient population. And then it's like so uncomfortable right now. <laughs> <laughs> None of when, that was what I thought you were going to say. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and uh, so, but then like when I had ophthalmology, I was like, you know, like, I don't really know if I like eyes, but I would love to like be in a peds clinic for a week. And so then I requested the peds version of that. And same goes for derm. And yeah. And so I think, honestly, I think you can just like kind of similar to AJOC, I think you can really like hop into anything. And then what I do know is most med schools will let like will let you request a specific clinic. So you can really like tailor that to however you want. I will say I also like I remember being very stressed about putting in my like list of the order that I wanted my rotations in. And I remember every upper class one was like, it literally doesn't matter. And in hindsight, it also literally doesn't matter. But I can it literally feel, does not matter. <laughs> it literally does not matter. And I'll tell you why. Because here's the situation. If you're if you're doing if you're just an IM and like IM is your very first block, it like literally won't matter because you're gonna end up doing like a sub I later on. Like you're gonna have your very important IM rotation way later after you're done with all of your core rotations. If you end up having IM at the very, very end, great, because then you have like the knowledge of a million rotations beforehand. I want to do dermatology and I remember like being super bummed that derm was my last rotation. And then like in hindsight, I'm like, wow, it's really nice that I like had had like IM and peds and like allergy and room and all these other things before I did the rotation that I was most excited about. And even still, it literally doesn't matter because I'm going to go back and do like a four week rotation that's going to be way more impactful. So I know it's hard to just be like caution to the wind, like, you know, try everything and see what you like. But genuinely, I think that at least our school does a really good job of like making it literally not matter where, you know, you could really just have a full year to do the rotations, chill out, actually try to enjoy everything. And then you can do the more like important version of that rotation, which is like your four week for whatever you choose, you'll do like a four week block. And, um, you know, that will be the time where it does matter. And I know it's, it's like, it's not like, it's not reassuring to be like, you know, do whatever you want and enjoy the whole thing. But genuinely, you could you have the luxury of doing that. And then medical students back. don't like to throw caution. I know, to the I know. Wind. Okay, not caution to the wind. But the thing is, like, Speak you're going to do like, <laughs> all, all, like all the rotations we're going to select. You're going to do most of them. At least like I will. Like, you kind of doing most of the things. And so, you know, by the end of that, by the time you have to figure it out, you can, you know do you can you'll know you have enough knowledge to know what to do and yeah i have not i want to add some advice from not myself because i haven't gone through this because if you haven't listened to this i'm currently trudging through a phd but it's from the very wise mind of aline sanduk Mm -hmm. she had talked about how she had gone to rotations and she had already known she wanted to do psych and so she had gone through all these rotations that were not psych related and it was kind of 
this idea that you're going to go through your entire core year and there's probably going to be a point at which you're like, oh, I actually think I want to do this. And then you will already have chosen some electives that might not align with what you've now chosen to do. Maybe you go through your pediatrics rotation and you're like, this is awesome. And then urology block is next. And you're like, how am I going to get anything out of this when I know I want to do peds? So one, you're going to have your advanced rotation. So don't worry about it. But two, there's this sense where you have to then go into the rest of the rotations like, oh, I still don't know what I want to do, kind of impress the residents as if they could still convince you of joining their specialty. But what Aline had recommended was it's okay to say, you know, I'm leaning towards psych, but this is what I think I could really get out of this rotation because there's going to be something you can get out of every rotation that will apply to whatever you're going into. Maybe you'll never use a stethoscope ever again in your entire life because you're going to go into like ophthalmology. They probably use stethoscopes. I'm sorry for nope. eye people, but Knock on wood. then you're going to go and do a cardiology rotation. You're still going to need to be a doctor that when somebody falls on a plane and they go, where's the doctor? You can say, I'm right here. So having that skill of understanding the body as a whole is going to be really valuable. So odds are, if you don't know now, you're probably going to know at some point during your clerkship, and then you're going to regret some of the electives you've chosen. So again, throw caution to the wind. It doesn't it's not as deep as it as it may seem. It's it's very exciting to. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think it's very exciting to like there's something I like always knew I wanted to be in the clinic. Like I am, I don't belong in an OR. And so I think for me, it was like, I only have like really four weeks to do this or six weeks. I can't even remember how long it was now, but, and I was like dreading, like, for example, my surgery rotation, like I, because like, you know, you just hear awful things and I like really, really loved it. And I remember like being there being like, Oh my God, I only have a week left of this for probably the rest of my entire life. And like, you know, like how many people would just like kill to be in an episode of Grey's Anatomy right now. And I'm like living it. And, you know, I don't know. I think you, yeah, I totally agree that you, you know, if you can approach it from a perspective of like most of these things, I'll literally never, ever do again in my life. And like how like precious that time really becomes from that perspective, I think it becomes you know far more enjoyable. You may never hear another murmur in your entire life. So yeah. when the doctor says patient's got a murmur, you yeah. go listen to it because yeah. that's crazy. So it sounds like your advice is to start with the kinds of patients that you might want to work with. Yes. I think so. And then make your choices, letting people know once you get there that you are interested in that patient population and that you might like to see some things that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That deal with those patients. Yeah. And just when you're choosing electives, it does feel very daunting. I mean, I've not done it. So I'm saying it will feel daunting even for my own brain because I'll want to try to choose the best ones and get the best experience. But at the end of the day, you're going to get a great experience with whatever electives you choose. So try to figure out what you might be interested in now and then understand that that might change. And so probably some of your rotations are not going to matter as much as you think they will at the beginning. And it's important to remember the big picture in the background as well. I guess a good example of this would be my last rotation of courier was psych. I am never going to have a patient encounter in clinic go longer than like maybe 20 to 30 minutes for a very complicated operative patient. And on psych, you're spending potentially hours talking to patients and for every single patient So I knew immediately that I don't really want to do that. I know I'm going to run out of attention span, but I'm going to do my best to talk to this patient and remember, this is how I can get people that are going to put a lot of vulnerability and responsibility into my hands 
and trust me to help heal them. So I'm going to take in getting them comfortable with me, getting their history and what's important to them. And I'm only going to spend maybe a couple of minutes doing that with my specialty of choice. But on psych, I got to practice it for hours and hours. And as a student, you whatever you do is for your learning. You want to remember that is for your learning on top of everything. So even if you have to write notes, even if you have to do presentations, just remember you can tailor it for whatever goals that you have specifically and talk to that with your preceptors as well so they can also help you with this. I mentioned that I was interested in something heavily operative on psych. So one of the residents I worked with on psych, he knew I was going to take step one like a couple of weeks later. So whenever we had downtime between patients, he just helped me figure out all of the psych related step one material that would be tested in a couple of weeks after my step two, more step two related psych shelf. So remember the big picture and also include others for help. Like be very communicative. You will never get dinged for being too communicative. I think like also in hindsight, I think it's also important to remember that like, you know, that like you're, you know, like if you're an ophthalmologist, then like that psych patient is also like your patient, you know, like your patient will not just be the patient who like comes to you in clinic that day. That patient will also have had like a urology appointment somewhere. And that patient will also have had like been an ICU maybe. And like, I think it's, I think in hindsight, that's like kind of the best part of the whole year is like, you know, like what every aspect of a patient's care looks like. I remember like on IM, they were like, it's really important to do an ICU rotation, even if you become an outpatient hospitalist, because like that's where the patient will go. And of course, like in that, context it's way easier to see the line between but like even for derm like you know we get patients who had like an extended stay and like in an icu or in a hospital bed and they come to the outpatient clinic and it's important to know like what happened to that patient in that context or like this this patient had a psych appointment what happened in that context that will 100 percent directly impact the patient that's sitting in front of me so i think that's another important part of you know having like a holistic view on your rotations well all right helena nothing matters <laughs> nothing matters nothing matters Pick it out of a hat. Yeah. Just any random collective. Trust the process, I (laughs) guess is what we're saying. Helena, uh, let us know how it goes. Let us know about the choices you make. Let us know if if we're full of shit. (laughs) And thanks for your question. That was a really good one. Yeah, appreciate that. You can ask us a listener question anytime you want by sending an email to theshortcoats at gmail.com. You can reach out to us on social media. Always happy to get listener questions because it means I don't have to think to make a show. (laughs) And I like that. I'm down with that. Shortcoats, we love to hear from you, no matter what it's about. So call us at 347-SHORT-CT with questions, shower thoughts, complaints about your situation, whatever you like. We'll talk about it on the show. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Dave. I'm no longer interested in making babies. But if I was, I think I might try for a baby that's beautiful, intelligent, tall, athletic, healthy with a fully developed second set of arms that I'm pretty sure would come in handy in some situations. What do you think about that idea? What an opener. We'll start there. <laughs> you just um, described a really big dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we So we actually played this game in our house quite a bit that one of our MSTPs always starts with a question. If you could have hands for feet or feet for hands, which would you choose? And that's what that made me think of. The obvious answer is, of course, hands for feet. Yeah. Because yeah. It's like monkeys. Yeah. So many I am hands. literally a primate. I come from the trees. I wish to return to the trees. Okay. So you I return to monkey. To yeah. That said, this is this is a wonderful question. What do we do about the the fact that we are 
nigh on the the precipice of gene editing our next generations. So that's that's kind of what I wanted to 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 talk to you guys about today. So we'll we'll start with like general vibes, I guess. Vibes on the concept of gene editing, especially as it, it pertains to therapeutics over the next 100 years or cosmetics, whatever, you know, just the vibes. I was thinking about this earlier and I remember a couple of years ago, there was a scientist in China mm-hmm. that I think he is no longer in jail, but he did gene editing on twins. I think it was like an HIV protective gene and he was immediately condemned by the scientific community at large and also obviously jailed by the Chinese government. And I kind of still am leaning towards that. It's not one. We just don't know enough to see what the effects of gene editing are first an actual living human being over the course of his lifespan or their lifespan. And also like, are we, are we, it's not always a question of like, can we do it, but should we do it? And that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. And the bioethics of it. Right. So for the listeners, I'm going to go ahead and give you just probably too much backstory on this. So the scientist's name was who is his Jankui. Yeah, there we go. And he was, Um, soundly condemned by the academic community after everybody realized that nobody liked this. But before, he had many... Accomplices feels like a strong word, but certainly people that were aware of what he was doing. Both you say in, supporters? I would, I would say... At least yeah, yeah, not, people not colleagues, stopping him? Supportive colleagues. <laughs> okay. Or at least silent... Yeah. Silent, silent acceptors? Yeah, they were Bystanders. complicit colluders yeah, okay. by their silence. Their silence <laughs> yes. made them colluders. It's like, how many words can we use yeah. to describe maybe what this was? And, yes. And, I, and I'm not talking at like little podunk institutions that you've never heard of. Stanford, MIT. Like mm-hmm. this, this guy was not a quote unquote lone wolf in the scientific community. People were aware that he was going to attempt something like this. And the Chinese government seemed very like poised to celebrate him on his announcement until they realized the backlash and then it came out oh no he did this all on his own right so i would like to state for the record that the biotech community knew what was happening and they were almost ready to make this leap a couple of things that who did wrong okay First, he went after the CCR5 gene, which is the the HIV gene, right? So this gene was discovered genetic traces in small communities in Great Britain that had a larger resistance to the bubonic plague. And turns out HIV and the bubonic plague have a very similar attack mechanism in in your cells. I won't get into the bio... uh, physics of it but it is pretty cool anyway i'm intrigued but not that um, Thank you. <laughs> the point is that if you have a a, a above average uh, then population resistance to the bubonic plague you also have a resistance to hiv and this bore out during the hiv we'll call it a pandemic in the the late 80s and early 90s while we were tracking these things right and so he's like i know we'll go to this village where it is a, sig- a significant issue for many it was it was a problem caused it was a manufactured problem based on government migration and and industry requirements right so it it wasn't really the people's fault that there was basically an entire small community that was just rampant with HIV. And he found three, it was three children total. So twins from one family and a, and a single child from another family. And he talked to the parents and he gave them informed consent. And some people question how much informed consent you can, you have with this kind of concept, right? But he gave them informed consent and said, I'm going to try to insert a gene that will give them resistance to HIV for the rest of their lives before they are born. So as embryos, right? So um, interesting context there, because if you're a parent, you might be very interested in that. You yeah. might, you know, and, and and probably also not 
worrying too much about the ethics of it. Okay. One, of the, one of the parents actually made a comment later that, of course, she was coerced, but not by her, but by the social um, situation that their children were in, they yeah. were being born into. Yeah. Right? This is, you said, a community that has high prevalence of HIV. Yeah, like okay. incredibly high prevalence. Okay. And so... It would be the same thing as somebody in the United States saying, of course, I was coerced to donate plasma. I live in poverty, mm. not because somebody is trying to steal yeah. my plasma, but because, frankly, I need to be able to eat. Right. Yeah. It was the same situation where these parents are saying, I I want my children to be as safe as possible in a community where that the likelihood is very, very low mm-hmm. unless we take this very drastic step. So that's the backdrop to his decision to do this. Of course, the dangers were there were other methods that we could do to, to mitigate the risk of HIV and these children. Right. Um, and the CRISPR technology that he used, there are concerns of indels, which are off target effects. So that's definitely a concern, right? There's a reason that he spent five years in prison. He's out and now he's back to his biotech ways, figuring out the next aspiration toward making the human race <laughs> what can better. I do? What can I do that won't put me in jail, <laughs> but which is still what I want to do? I mean, that's exactly what you said yeah. to make the human race. I mean, better. isn't that what I mean, we're all doing? We're yeah. all trying yeah. to figure out what we yeah. can, what we can do that won't end us and have us end up in jail, but yeah, you know, yeah. is what we want to do. So, so with that context, we have free, free. Let's talk about the situation or, or other situations. I'm not gonna, t- I'm not gonna tell you. <laughs> I don't want to know what Dave's up to. It's like going five miles over the speed limit just I'm, to see. How I don't, I don't want to be a silent colluder, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I think like you asked, what are our vibes? And like, I think the vibes are simply based on that last sentence, which is like trying to make the human race better. Like the vibes are off because this is that eugenics. sentence sounds off like yep. that. I mean, in a lot, in a lot of ways, this is like a eugenics like phenomena. Mm. And you can argue that it's not. Cause maybe we would just try to like change the color of eyes or whatever, like kind of benign thing or like, you know, cure HIV or whatever it may be. There are like, it's under this guise of good, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you won't inadvertently through offering this kind of create a domino effect that will lead to eradication of kind of really unique genes that make our population special and cool. And that's probably why it feels so icky is like it feels very much like a ball that is like waiting at the top of a hill that when pushed down, it just won't stop. Yeah. So I think we're I think we're kind of this is maybe is a little bit different than like genetic modification, but I think we are actually doing a really like great job at genetic selection in a questionable way. So I was thinking like so one of my friends here has two children and has these like frozen embryos, right? And she's like, what I didn't know is that like I actually, if I wanted to, could be told like the sex of all these embryos. And like currently she has two daughters. And she's like, it never really occurred to me that I like want a son. But what I do know now is that there is like a male embryo in this like batch. And if she wanted, she could choose the next embryo based on sex. And I guess I'm thinking of, so India has, it's getting better now, but it has a very off balance male to female ratio due to some really bad things, you know, and and again, like it's all getting better now, but like high rates of like female infanticide, high rates of like abortion of female fetuses in a country that where like abortion is not so stigmatized, just like really bad things. And so I'm thinking like, you know, like a woman who is doing IVF in India, like maybe, and it's kind of like what Jeff is saying, because of her social situation, maybe inclined to choose to have a male child. And, you know, and like, it's been like, I think 
it, it doesn't sound good. It's not good. It's like not a good thing. It's this imbalance of like male to female ratio has led to some hypothesized leads to like increased rates of like violence against women, which is like probably true. A country that like devalues women, which is also probably true. But then, you know, when you really look at it, like in an anthropological setting, what is like the culture of some of these like smaller towns in India? It's that like a woman gets married, leaves this family forever, and then does not have a financial contribution, like in this cultural society, like a male son stays and like, takes care of his parents. So like, Totally, I understand how, like, in this society, it makes financial sense. It makes, you know, like, it makes sense for a couple to choose this. And so I, like, wonder in the, in the same in the same path of thinking where you can, like, well, you know, if you can choose to have a male or female, you can choose to have a kid who's strong. You can choose to have a kid with blue eyes. You know, you can choose these things. And I just, you know, maybe I, like, put too much faith in natural selection, but I just feel like when you choose from your own self-interest, it just like doesn't serve a larger society. It like serves your family, maybe. And that's also like a maybe. Like, I, I don't believe that like having a daughter will like serve you wrong, you know? But obviously like I'm limited to the scope of my own life and like my parents' life and not really thinking about a family where if you have six daughters and they all leave you, what are you left with? That is a very real situation for some people. Yeah, so I don't know. I just feel like when we choose in our own self-interest, then... I just feel like we're in a, you know, I feel like I want to define like what we currently have as like options for like kind of this genetic selection. So we have so we have embryos. So a lot of people who are going through IVF and or kind of freezing of eggs and embryos oftentimes we'll have the option to genetically test those. And in a lot of cases of explained infertility where there are genetic problems, that is a very common use of genetic testing, which is to make sure that the embryo will be viable. That does not extend past known genetic problems with embryos that would lead to an inviable pregnancy. In my understanding, that is not it's not an option to choose outside of sex. You can't choose just about anything else other than just making sure that they don't have the genetic abnormality that you already are tested for. So that is kind of like our options is the sex and then genetic problems like I don't actually have a good example off the top of my head. I have a fantastic example off the top of my head. Do you guys know what the prevalence of trisomy 21 or Down syndrome is in Iceland? Mm. It's not very it's not very high. Nigh on nil Uh because this is one of the things that they test for and then eliminate. And the question is that sounds a lot more like eugenics than Mm -hmm. adding a gene might be. Right. And what's so weird is like there are there's the spectrum now. So we kind yeah. of talked about two instances in which like choosing the sex of your baby might be like benign versus kind of more malignant, which mm-hmm. is just a family that maybe in their interest is like, yeah, I would like to have two girls and a boy. Like there's not it's not like, oh, I want to lower the prevalence of females. Whereas the example that you gave Ananya of kind of the culture mm-hmm. of India, like in that anthropological sense, it makes It makes sense. And then you hear kind of like, okay, well, we could also choose genetics based on the viability of the embryo, because there are a lot of people that will get pregnant and that pregnancy will not go to term simply because of genetics. But then on the other side of the spectrum, we have eugenics of trisomy 21. Yeah. And it's everything is just like the line is so blurred. Another thing to add on top of that is you don't even consider what the feelings and reaction of the person that would be born would have to this once they are old enough to understand how they were born and what was done to their genes in order to be born with the certain characteristics they have. Like, what if you choose to have a daughter and they come out as transgender males? 
they or transgender men they were assigned female at birth you, and in this case you literally assigned them female sex yeah. at birth like how do you reconcile that or just like the fact that an, an embryo can't consent to having their genes edited at all or even assent to it which in the world of pediatrics is what i guess would be the equivalent to a child saying yes i want to do this i assent to it it doesn't matter what their decision is ultimately because the parents are the ones giving informed consent in this case but it's always good to have that you literally can't even get that out of an embryo you know this this it's not the same but it does remind me of the fact that you know parents make choices for their kids all the time and in some situations those choices can come back to haunt you (laughs) yeah and i i was thinking while you were saying that is the the choices that we made to you know take a lot of pictures of our children and put them on the internet which was a very common thing when when my kids were young and then later my daughter was like get those pictures off the internet (laughs) i'm like i can't i don't know where they are yeah and yeah it just sort of highlights like you don't know what your kid is going to want i will first i'll offer a book recommendation to the audience and my fellow uh, (laughs) oh thank you for including the genetic lottery and the premise is essentially we all are playing the genetic lottery yeah we are born not only are we born with the genes that we're born with our parents really can't decide which genes that they have to offer we get born with right more importantly a lot of traits are polygenic they come from more than one gene and we have some genes that may be associated with certain things, but others we may not know or we can't possibly understand the complexity of it. And so there are things that we wouldn't be able to design if we wanted to, right? It's just sheer dumb luck. One of those is height. You cannot, with any reasonable certainty, even if some mad scientists were out there trying to do this, taking embryos and designing babies based on height, there would it would it's it's a crapshoot right it's literally which is of course a gambling term it it's 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 gambling you don't know it's a lottery we wouldn't be able to cosmetically design babies to be taller because we wanted to because there are too many genes involved in that if you have two tall parents you're more likely to be tall but you're not guaranteed to be tall right yeah and certainly the same can be said when we're designing babies the same for intelligence it's literally not possible to pinpoint all of the genes involved in such a complex concept as intelligence right so i think that helps out a little bit with the cosmetic idea like you want to give your kid four arms that's a that's another story i don't, I don't know anything about that Dave. but if if, Damn it. if we're concerned about like the ultra wealthy say your your bill gates types i don't think that he would do this but it doesn't matter right say that they wanted to design ultra tall ultra intelligent children it's it's literally not possible so it there's no real point in arguing that but the things that we could discuss are are we going to try to edit out certain genetic diversity for the sake of avoiding what what somebody might call potential suffering down the road, right? Yeah. So you would edit out the genetic diversity for sickle cell anemia, right? Yeah. In certain populations, it's actually advantageous for that to exist, even if we don't like it. Okay. This is like a broad statement and I'm sure we're about to poke holes in it, but I just, hot take, I feel like there's no bad genes. Like I feel like, what we so like we're talking about like height and strength for example where like we're like okay if we have and frankly i don't i don't think that people because we live in like a very gendered society because we live in like a very specific community of currently like iowa city iowa or even just like america i just i feel like okay so here we're like okay we want our kids to be super tall now i don't know that like because of the way that we are conditioned and gendered we i don't think we'd be like oh i want an eight foot tall daughter i feel like people would be like oh i want my son to be eight feet tall because 
anecdotally, like, you know, not every girl who's super tall likes being super tall, whatever. And so I feel like, or we're like, okay, suppose I like genetically engineer my child to be super tall and super strong. And then like my kids like, damn mom, I really wanted to be a gymnast. And like now, you know, like now I'm super tall and super strong. And I like, I'm, this is like not what I wanted. And so I'm just like wondering, like, and I, and I guess like I'm speaking from the perspective of like a very able-bodied person without a chronic condition. So like this is illness aside, but I guess I'm thinking both like, I think I, I guess I'm think, still maybe thinking more like cosmetically or like in these ways, which like we're saying crosses over. And like, I guess like Jeff had the great example of, this, of like sickle cells. So it's like, okay, great. Now you don't have this like sickling disease and now you have malaria. So like, I don't know. I just like wonder like if there really are any bad genes. Like I may, again, maybe I'm just like too Darwin, but I just feel like we've done a great job. And I, once again, I don't want to like devalue the experience of somebody who was like suffering from a genetic condition, but I feel like overall we've done a decent job of like evolving for a specific reason, which is why we have more people in Africa with like sickle cell where, you know, it's protective for their environment. I just don't want to. I, I would make the argument and I apologize. I know that I'm very passionate about this issue. You brought up a couple of issues. One that I, yeah. I want to bring no, up. I want to hear it. I want to hear it. We already do this to kids like it has nothing to do with genetics, right? Like we put kids in piano because we want them to be piano players. And they're like, mom, I hate piano. And we don't care. Five, five more years, you're going to be in piano, right? Or they play football because everybody in the family plays football, even though they don't like football, right? Kids are already pigeonholed into all of these experiences throughout their entire lives. And some cultures, it's expected that like when you're born, like we already know what your job's going to be, right? Mm -hmm. Because your family has assigned that role. And guess what? That's what you're going to do. I don't think that giving them... It, Cosmetics is so low on my list of concerns with genetic editing, but let's just say I, giving them green eyes instead of brown eyes. Like, I think that's so low on the well, not that. me forcing children to be different. Four fingers, right? And now yeah. they can't play the piano and they wanted to be a piano player. Yeah. I mean, there's also the real, the very real, like, again, we've already poked holes and like, you can't change height, but in a hypothetical world, you could change height and you could have a taller human. It is well documented that taller humans are more highly respected they oftentimes are paid more simply based on their height this is like a thing that is known that taller men are seen as more dominant there's oftentimes more likely to be ceos so like in the same they case they also have a higher cancer risk by the way they also have a higher cancer risk more cells yeah more cells and their lungs are weak but yeah i mean there's like in Just that world how here. is that different than <laughs> the next time i see chris cooper i'm gonna say your lungs are weak yeah <laughs> but yeah i mean it's that's it's our dean he's this, tall it's the what is the difference between that and like getting your kid in tutoring after school because you want them to be good at school because you want them to get a good job to do piano because, you know, it helps their brain develop and it helps their creativity and it helps their ability to do math or whatever it is. I'm not a parent, clearly, if you can't tell. But like there is what's really the difference? No, I and that's that's a very I think that's what you're getting. That, yeah, that's that's my point is that like if. Because a lot of people are concerned about the the social stratification that would happen, right? Of course, rich people who can afford this are more likely to do this, right? Rich people already put their kids in the best schools that are basically just like pipelines to the Ivy League, which are just pipelines to the best jobs in, in the country, right? Like they are already doing this, putting their kids at such an advantageous con condition over their very equal peers just by, by the situation. I don't know if changing the color of their eyes, for example, is really going to make that much of a, a difference. They'll just have a different color eye. But that's just that's just one of the things that I, I've been thinking about with this. And I same guess with also uh, with sex selection. Yeah. If if the child grows up to identify with their sex assigned at birth and they are female versus male, I mean, that is, again, well documented to like 
bring advantages or disadvantages to your life. I want to add a As wrinkle. I mean, wrinkle away. I know. We okay, so I think it's more so just something that we haven't actually touched upon, which is we're talking a lot about genetic editing of an embryo and mm-hmm. why that would be great is because if you change just the few cells that are in an embryo, all those cells divide and become a human. It's crazy, I know, but sounds they easier. do. So it sounds easier. Like you could just do that. I mean, there's less cells to attack. You do them all and then so on and so forth. You get a human that has all those genes. And then we'll pass on those genes. And then we'll pass on those genes. Counter. You also have an adult. Say they have cystic fibrosis. And this is a massive area of research right now, which is can we edit the genes that are responsible for cystic fibrosis? Or can we edit the proteins that are actually the problem within cystic fibrosis? I swear to you, this is current research happening. It's not in babies, though. Can we do it in adults? Can we have an inhaler that actually goes to the lungs and can attack the CFTR gene that then changes the CFTR protein? That is different because we've got now embryo versus adult. And now that comes back to the idea of consent. And can you pass on those genes? Because for adults that you've just changed the genes in their lungs or in their pancreas, or there's a lot of places that cystic fibrosis attacks, but that way that person cannot pass on that newly edited gene versus embryos. So there is two areas of gene editing. One, in my opinion, the adult gene editing feels a bit more benign than this kind of changing of embryos and their genetic diversity. So to to this point, to give a little bit of context for the, the listeners who aren't nerds about the specific subject like I am, this is germline, which is the things you're going to pass on versus somatic cells. It doesn't necessarily need to be an adult, right? Like this, these are types of procedures that we would certainly allow our children to undertake a five-year-old or something like that had cystic fibrosis. Mm-hmm. Some of that research is that's really phenomenal, actually, it's being done here at yeah. Iowa. Shout out to Iowa. Shout out to Iowa. If you like cystic fibrosis research, this might be a place. I I 100% agree that it it does change when we're talking about one person as opposed to what would change essentially the allelic frequency of a population, which is synthetic evolution. Mm. I'm not necessarily against synthetic evolution. Here's my point to that. I think we're already doing synthetic evolution in the sense that there are genes. I will I will agree with the point. No gene is bad. Genes are either disadvantageous or advantageous, depending on the environment. In our current environment, there are certain genes that are incredibly disadvantageous, but medical advancements are allowing those people to stay around. Diabetes could very well be a death sentence for a child 200 years ago. In fact, often was. And yet now people are surviving to adulthood, reproducing, passing on those genes. Right. And we're very happy to keep those people alive. I think they they add to the world in wonderful ways. That said, would it be beneficial to, since we're already allowing that particular population to continue, we're not allowing evolution to select them out, why don't we just get rid of the thing that could select them out by getting rid of either somatically or in the germline diabetes? That's a really interesting point, which is that because, I mean, just in evolution speak, some diseases used to to kill people in childhood. Yeah. Therefore, those people did not have the chance to reproduce. So, and those genes through then medical for, advancement, became very rare yeah. because you Cystic can't fibrosis, diabetes, all of these are great examples of diseases that used to kill children well before they were mature enough to ever consider passing along their genes. So, in a way, just keeping people around longer is a form of manipulation of our genetic pool. It's no longer random. I never thought about it like that. I think that's a good thing. Like it's it's a a phenomenal thing, Nobody would argue that like keeping 
people with diabetes or cystic fibrosis into their 60s and 70s or 80s even is a bad thing. I mean, I personally have seen this in action. My husband's uncle unfortunately passed away of cystic fibrosis last year. He was in his 60s. That's incredible. Yeah, 50 I got years to ago, know he would have been like maybe 20. And there, he so had a brother a that yeah. died at 12. Yeah. That's incredible that he watched his brother die at 12 and he got to have 50 more years of life. He had a daughter and like he got to see his grandson born. Like it was an incredibly vibrant life. And at the end of his days, it was a celebration of the fact that he got to live so long. And nobody would say like, oh, that was a waste of our medical advancement. Even though... Personally, now I am married to a person that I don't know if they have the cystic fibrosis gene. And that is something that I now have to think about. So like in some ways that was able to continue on. Yeah. But that's I wouldn't call that a bad thing because I'm really happy for these future children that I might have that are still very unlikely to have cystic fibrosis. And so, so so in this situation, my question would be, say we have a child now with cystic fibrosis in the population it is a it is a more reasonable use of our resources and a and a offering a better life to them to have a genetic edit that can prevent all of the treatment that they're going to need over the next 70 years in order to give them that full life as opposed to just doing that treatment which which one's going to be the better course of action this is why in somatic cells i think this is a valid point there are what i want to say 27 FDA approved gene therapies in the United States right now. There are close to a thousand that are currently being evaluated by the FDA. And this is the full spectrum of forms of gene editing, whether it's editing cells outside of the body and then reintroducing them or but there's just, I mean, there's so many different ways. I'm not going to get into the technical details, but there's like five or six different techniques. And then each one of those has like 12 sub techniques that would allow us to do this. But the point is we're doing this in somatic cells. Yeah. I think we're a lot more comfortable with that, which I think is a good thing. Right. But to, to that point, it's like, these are people that we want around. We want this increased genetic diversity. And yet also we kind of don't want certain genes that are going to cause so much problems for people. Mm-hmm. If they're so disadvantageous, if we can yeah. take them out, why wouldn't we? So in my personal experience, I mean, if we're talking gene numbers, we're talking Punnett squares here. Sure. Cystic fibrosis is a great example. I You can do the math and realize that my husband has a one in three risk of having the cystic fibrosis gene. He does not have cystic fibrosis. It is a recessive gene. He could have the gene and not actually have the disease. As a Caucasian woman, I also know that generally I have like a one in what, 28 or there's some number that depending on your kind of genetic ancestry. Thank you. Genetic ancestry. Thank you. I was looking for the right word. Because people Um, who are quite pale, but for example, from Slavic countries are going to have a significantly lower prevalence of cystic fibrosis. Thank you. Yes. Look up the research for why it's very fascinating. And so would someone in my in kind of my experience of knowing that there is kind of these two numbers and this unknown chance if i say wanted to get myself tested and i found out i have cystic fibrosis and i wanted to get my husband tested and we found out he had cystic fibrosis and that is a an unknown burden to put on a child like this is a real real example of when I would use potentially making embryos and genetically testing them to consider if we do or do not want to have a child with cystic fibrosis. It's a real life example. Or we could just say throw caution in the wind and just do it. I'm not saying this is like a decision that we're currently trying to make. This is just kind of a hypothetical that I've run in my brain. But suddenly in my brain, who already feels a little bit weird about this idea of 
genetic manipulation, I might say. Feels a little bit more palatable. Feels a little more palatable because yeah. now this is this is a future that would then be for myself as well. I think most of my friends, albeit maybe feeling icky about genetic changes or this idea of changing embryos, would tell me to get tested. I think most of my like medical friends would say, like, that's a smart idea to have the information in front of you. So Although those same friends might also say the idea of selecting is off-putting. And I, so I'm going to lay out a few options that somebody in your position might have, right? In this our hypothetical world that say that we actually have the ability to manipulate this out of the, out of the genome, right? Which we're close, but we don't have any tried and true techniques. You, and none of these options are without some ethical ickiness, I yes. would call it. Yeah. You can choose not to have children. Mm-hmm. Which, believe it or not, has some ethical ickiness, right? Especially if you're looking at populations that are declining in over like most of the developed world. And that's a concern for a lot of people. Maybe not for you. That's okay, right? Mm-hmm. It's always going to be the individual's decision, but that's not without some concern. You can have the child via IVF and then decide to pick the one that doesn't have it, mm-hmm. which I feel like is a little bit more like eugenics than just editing. Correct. But you can have the embryo and edit it germline so mm-hmm. that that child doesn't have cystic fibrosis and your grandchildren won't have cystic fibrosis mm-hmm. or you can throw caution to the wind and have the child and if it does have cystic fibrosis go for a somatic treatment which again not available but let's say it were all of those have so many questions yeah of like like no person can make these decisions without there being like some concern right there's mm-hmm. no tried and true objective right answer to any of those options and I think that I just want people to be able to have the option, right? In some ways, it makes life messier. I I actually heard a quote from a a parent who had a child who had one of these genetic ailments and the the child died, right? And the parent had the opportunity to extend the child's life for a significant amount of time, but not into adulthood. We're talking four years instead of like four weeks, right? And the parent decided not to. And the child died in, in infancy. And it was a very vulnerable moment for the parent to share this story. And she said, I wish that you know, the child was born 50 years ago or 50 years into the future where 50 years ago, there was nothing we could have done and there wasn't a decision to be made or 50 years in the future where the decision could have been, we'll just cure it and the child won't have to suffer. But in the middle, I have six other kids that I have to feed. I can't afford to be traveling back and forth to the hospital and to give all of my time and attention to this child for four years and all of the emotional burden on my entire family. It's just too much. And that's kind of where we are with a lot of these diseases, right? We're still kind of right in the middle. (laughs) So asking that we we throw in more options and giving people even more hard decisions to make is, is maybe selfish of me, but I think it's, a, I don't know, I think people deserve that. Well, because I think on a population level, you would look at it and say, okay, editing certain genes or certain conditions out of populations feels somewhat icky. Like the mm-hmm. idea, especially, I mean, especially the idea of say editing out, say trisomy 21 or which is a little bit different than say kind of a disease that is likely to kind of kill someone in infancy or childhood. And I'm not going to kind of specifically talk about any specific disease here, but editing it on the population level, it's easy to remove the personal experience that individuals will go through, both the individual with the disease and then the caretakers of that individual. But when you think about it on a personal level and you hear the stories of the caretakers and you hear the stories of those who may be suffering with certain diseases, you can't help but suddenly start to flip your mind And think about how we as doctors, our job is to reduce suffering, to reduce disease. And in that same vein, 
something that felt so icky on the population level feels really reasonable on an individual level. Shortcoats, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us. And don't forget to tag us in your post. Thank you. I still think that like when we're talking about all of these, I feel like when I'm trying to like grapple with it, I think my answers changed based on like the outcome. So exactly. What, so like, for example, and I will name some specific diseases without any valence, just with the objective facts. So, you know, I think cystic fibrosis, I 100% agree with everything you're saying. Wonderful that we keep, keep people alive. I, as a medical friend, would like, of course, urge you to like get tested at XYZ. So like, let's do trisomy 21. So trisomy 21, I've like, met maybe like three people with Down syndrome in my entire life. From what I know from meeting these, this like N equals three population. And like, I think a little bit more of just like knowing like the pathogenesis of disease and like what those patients are like the patients themselves actually don't have like reduced quality of life. And like, like because of their condition, they're actually like extraordinarily happy, extraordinarily happy people. And so when I look at it, whether from a population perspective or like a, you know, just like if I'm thinking about one family, I'm thinking like, okay, this patient actually does not have diminished quality of life. Maybe they do have, in fact, they do definitely have a reduced number of years. So like, what's my metric here? Is my metric like the quality of life? Because if that's my metric for like deciding whether or not to, you know, do some gene modification for this embryo person, whatever you want to call it. I'm thinking like, okay, well, if I change the genes, it probably won't improve their quality of life. In fact, it may, I mean, like statistically people with Down syndrome have, they're happier people. So maybe it'll like decrease their quality of life. So like in that metric, I'm like, maybe, maybe not. If my metric is like length of life lived, then like definitely like it's maybe in that, just for that specific metric, maybe it's, maybe we'll call it disadvantageous to be a person with trisomy 21. If I think about being a caretaker, I'm like, well, definitely these patients like need more care. If I'm thinking about finances, these patients need more finances. Like, I just feel like it's so metric dependent. I feel like there's some conditions where it's very straightforward. Like I, if I could choose for my children's not to have Huntington's, then I would like definitely do that. If I could choose for my kids not to have Alzheimer's, I would definitely do that. I'm thinking about all the metrics and like life lived, like quality of those years, like all those metrics. It's so, it's easy. So to say, you know, like I wouldn't want, if I could choose for my kids to be able-bodied, I would probably choose that in the society I live in. And when I think about those kids specifically, you know, like I just, Trisomy 21 was just an example, but I'm sure there's so many others. When I think about the kid that will be born with this condition, for that kid, will it really be, you know, a harder life? I, I don't know. I think the metric that you're trying to name, Ananya, is quality yeah. adjusted life years. Yeah, yeah. That's all I'm going to yeah. add. I, I am not scientific <laughs> no, enough no, no, for no. this. No, no, no. That's the word. That's the word. That's great. Thank you. One yeah. example that keeps coming to my mind that is not necessarily along these same kind of I guess, lines of genetic editing, but is kind of a real life example is the idea of deafness. So when a baby is born deaf, there are kind of two conflicting parties in the kind of deaf community. And I am not deaf and I do not have loved ones that are deaf. So I do apologize if I do not do service to this community. But my understanding is that children that are deaf that are born to hearing parents, not necessarily always, but there's kind of the debate about whether or not you should give that child cochlear implants. Or to raise them specifically with American Sign Language or just signing. And there's definitely a debate within the community of if, for example, if you give a child cochlear implants and you don't teach them sign language, will they feel alienated from the rest of their other deaf community that may use sign language as their primary mode of communication versus some if you don't give them cochlear implants and you just teach them sign language are they alienated from this other subset of humans that primarily use vocal language to communicate 
And it reminds me a lot of this like gene editing conversation about okay, if you do something that kind of feels good for your child at its core, are you then alienating them from XYZ experience that they might have in life? So in the Down syndrome example, removing the trisomy 21, are you removing them from this happiness and joy that they might feel in that life? Because at the end of the day, the grass is always greener on the other side kind of thing where you're going to make a decision and you're always going to wonder which one would have been correct. Yeah, I think this is just another concept to be thinking about something that the anybody that does genetics population genetics or any species considers as genetic diversity because it is important for the survivability of a species not only because the genetic diversity limits these recessive traits that are disadvantageous right but also because if something new comes along the more diverse a population is, the more likely they'll be able to survive it. We're thinking something like the fact that there were genes at all for cystic fibrosis was likely the reason why it's it's more common in Northwest European genetic populations is likely due to some ailment of some kind. There have been there have been a couple of things that have been proposed. All of them are not without some people that at least think that they could maybe not. But that, that's an option, right? We we're pretty confident with with sickle cell that it's malaria, right? Which is why, for example, in South Africa, where malaria is not that common, sickle cell anemia just isn't there, right? Because it's not, there's no, ad, there's no advantage. We are using things like CRISPR now to add gen- genetic diversity to, to species that have been so bottlenecked that they're on the verge of extinction. One of the primary examples is prairie dogs in, in Wyoming. There's a colony there that we are specifically inserting genetic diversity into the population of like 50 or, hmm. or, or something like that to make sure that they can continue as a species. Hmm. I think that that's something that, cause I always think about this, like, let's just say we let every person on the planet decide the genes of their children, right? Are we all going to choose the same genes? I mean, I don't think so. I mean, 8 billion people, we're going to have preferences, but we can't even agree on like pizzas. Like, right? like there are out, people out here having pineapple and pizzas and it's yeah. crazy. And How it. a jam. <laughs> <laughs> What's the famous sauce that I'm everybody puts on everything here? Is it mayonnaise? Ranch? Ranch, yeah. <laughs> What's the famous sauce that people put on here? I don't I'm even like ranch. This is so New York. So the record, I am not a ranch girl, so and I am from famous the Midwest. Sauce. Come for me. This is this is a continuity thing. So if anybody wants to go back to the hot takes conversation, we have to. callbacks. So yeah, we, we have our preferences, but I, I think that it would be fair for there to be I don't know, maybe policies where we discuss genetic diversity in, in the population. But I think overall, I think people are, they're just, there's just so many preferences, right? People just want different things and that's okay. I think mm-hmm. that's fine. I don't necessarily want a child that has four arms, Dave. I think that, you know, if your child did. Wait, like four I, arms or four guess. arms? No. <laughs> Both four forearms. The, ah, the yeah. number four arms. No biceps. Just, <laughs> just four, straight up four arms. Forearms everywhere. It's really the hands. He just yeah. wants a child covered with hands. Uh. <laughs> oh man. You gotta get shirts tailored specifically for that child. It's like a whole <laughs> That sounds exhausting. I mean, but, maybe we'd we'd increase businesses. Yeah. So it's good for small businesses. Yeah. I'll throw another wrinkle in. So one of the things that we're talking about with space exploration, mm-hmm. this is really showing how nerdy I am, isn't genetic editing, which is its own thing. That is changing the genes that are in a person, right? Or a, a species, but actually genetic modification, which is its own. They sound like they're the same thing. Genetic modification is the inserting trans trans species insertions. And one of the ones that we've talked about with space travel is certain bacteria that are more resistant to radiation, 
which would be incredibly advantageous if you're going to send a human being into a place that doesn't have an ozone like space so that they don't get, you know, a thousand different types of cancer in the first week. Right. So that would be incredibly advantageous if you're thinking about becoming a, a space venturing population. Wow. We, I can think of a lot of other things that other species have that make them more advantageous to life that we could be doing here. If people got over this idea of GMOs, what are you guys' thoughts on genetically modified human beings? I mean, I'm watching the last of us. Like I'm seeing how fungi just inserted themselves into these humans and made little freaky zombie guys. Yes. So, okay. Some of you guys are a little bit smarter than me. (laughs) Feel free to tell me I'm wrong. Something like 10, 10% of our genomes are actually virus, endogenous virus genome. I have no idea what the number is. Sounds right. It's about 10%. So like literally, you know, one tenth of your genome is already another species genome. You are already a chimera of sorts. So I mean, shout out microbiome, just like most of the cells that you have currently like within you are just bacteria. Yeah, they're not Sorry your for cells. anyone yeah. that actually like absolutely hates that fact, but deal like with millions it. Millions of filthy, billions. You're a filthy, filthy person. Filthy piece of poo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this has been all over the place, which is like genetically modified fruits and veggies. It's like, I yeah, say, I, I love that. my banana being <laughs> nice and sweet and so ripe and perfect. Or, or um, my vegetables that are like drought resistant so I can get them even though we didn't get a lot of rain this year. Like yeah. I still want to eat my veggies, you know? So. Yeah, because I'm trying to stay healthy. Yeah. Try to get that fiber for my microbiome, for yeah. those other little guys in there. Now I want a child that's drought resistant. <laughs> they actually don't need water. It'll save you. I want a tardigrade. It'll save you about five dollars a month on your water bill. I want a tardigrade child. Yeah, you see, you want a child that can like fall into a volcano and just say, "I'm fine." Like, yeah, just they're still on the moon fifty years later, and you're like, "Oh, yeah. okay, they're fine." Plus, yeah. it, makes, uh, it makes travel a lot easier too, because if you, you know, if you if you can dehydrate your child and still have them live, <laughs> yes, you know, you it's could like vacuum you packing could, your clothes. Right. I mean, it yeah. would just make flying so much cheaper. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, the just practical flying. side of this argument. I mean, they come in for the win. <laughs> yeah, like saying. I don't know if I want my kids to be like one of the hundred people left on Earth. You know? Yeah, well, look, I but mean, like, I, what I think if even all if the we, humans can do this and they all become super resilient when it gets hotter? Like, well, okay. I think even if we don't genetically modify organisms, there are going to be, you know, as the world grows hotter, there are going to be people, be people who are more suited to that genetically and, and, you know, that modification will will happen. Not even genetically, culturally. Like culturally, there are already like people that live in places that reach 130 degree temperatures and they're big chilling, right? Sauna people, they love it. <laughs> sauna people are about to rule the world. I meant Bedouins, but also yeah. for the Finnish. <laughs> the Finnish are doing great. Yeah. So I don't know. It was just it's just a thought. Like if we're already having trouble with somatic cell editing, how would we feel about somatic cell gene modification? I feel about the same with it. I don't think that I would be terribly uncomfortable if another species genetic material were inserted into me in a way that gave me an ad- an advantage to surviving. But other people feel very, very icky about that. They didn't even want corn that had salmon in it or whatever the... Whatever, know, yeah. Bread. Whatever the genes that they're yeah, putting in a, a, veggies. A fi- fish and- apple or something. I don't know, but... <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's similar. Like, there's an ickiness to it. It's it's so contextual. Like, that's where we've we've gone in circles where it's like depends on the context, yeah. depends on how much good can come of it. It's how dare we be such rational thinkers? Yeah, like, how dare we talk in ethics, which is what is the good versus the bad that a certain decision brings? I mean, that's the whole point of this conversation. But yeah, I mean, it kind of would depend. If I could fly, sign me up. 
I was thinking specifically, so I don't know if you guys are aware of this. Elephants have 27 copies of the, what is it? One of the tumor suppressor genes that, ah. that oh, yeah, we have a copy of. They have 27 copies of them in every single one of their cells. This is important because elephants are very big. The more numbers of cells you have, the more chances you have of having cancer. And yet they don't because they have 27 copies in their genome of a tumor suppressor gene. That is so cool. Imagine if we gave super tall people I don't know, just five, five copies would be fine, right? <laughs> like that's better. That I mean, yeah. So the the idea here being that there are there are genetic advantages that other species have that could vastly increase quality of life in humanity. Are we willing to go down that road too? I mean, we can't even go down the road of let me just tweak the genes that you already have, right? But I think that it's it's worth pursuing at least ethically. It's it's a conversation that we could have. It's quite adjacent though to to viruses, skipping species which has happened a few times now. Yeah. Allegedly. This yeah. may be another Allegedly. can of worms, <laughs> but Jeff, your comment about Hang on. The- uh, Ananya, when do you have to leave? Now, sorry, but okay. I don't want to miss the can of worms. Say it fast. Okay. Okay, instead of prairie dogs, make it like adding genetic diversity to highly consanguineous communities in isolated areas. I think that that's a reasonable use of that technology because it allows those those populations to continue whatever the cultural practices they feel are important to them, right? But it does so in a way that helps them avoid a burden on the wider society, one, because there is a financial burden to medical treatment, whether or not the individual is paying for it, right? But two, it, it increases their quality of life without decreasing the cultural things that add value to their lives, right? An example would be populations of more orthodox or jewish communities are very insular in their marriage uh they, they don't marry us yeah marriage yeah. practices there we go not that there aren't other groups that are, are the same right but that's just an example that does run into the 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 biogenetics of it is like you're, you're running like into some problems here yeah there are it. consequences and if we could remove some of those consequences by inserting genetic diversity with full you know consent and uh, informed consent why wouldn't we well there's that i mean super very very terrible documentary that came out our father about the doctor who was using his own sperm to inseminate women and or embryos and it sounds like a friday movie night i've never seen it oh it's terrifying it's terrifying our father and now this population i mean one they're having to grapple with the emotional effects of having had this complete like just Terrible thing happened. But now this community has to grapple with the fact that there is less genetic diversity for a subset of children because a lot of them live within this certain radius. And so parents that were in this documentary were talking about how they're going to have to have conversations with their kids when they come of age to consider dating and consider having sex or whatever may bring about a child and how they're going to have to have chats with their kids about, hey, this is what happened to you. Let's make this more awkward, right? There are, let's yeah. Let's, let's make, make sex more you know awkward. How teenagers for, love for teenage, talking yeah. about sex. Let's yeah. make it way better for them by I also talking the about being the genetic that, like, diversity. Five hundred people in our town might be your actual genetic sibling. Yeah. Therefore, <sighs> how do you the level choose of parenting someone? Difficulty that'd be. So yeah, I mean, in this case, if you could remove that burden from this cohort of children who will now, in some ways, not be able to have normalcy. That'd be kind of cool. That yeah. would that would reverse some of the wrong, not all of it, that this doctor had done to this community. And I think really that's that's the most important part of justice. This is as an overall co- concept here is writing the wrongs that are done. Mm-hmm. Right. It's is trying to restore the damage in any way that we can. And that's really a big part of what we do as physicians. Right. Is we can't 
we can't go back and stop this terrible thing from happening. You were born with cystic fibrosis, but we can do our best to restore mm-hmm. quality of life to you. We need to wrap this up because Ananya has to go. Sorry, sorry. That's all right. But I would like to hear from our listeners about this. I'm confident that there are listeners out there who have genetic differences and, and, you know, things that they deal with on a daily basis who may have been infuriated by our conversation or may have been encouraged by our conversation. I like, I don't know. I would love to hear from our listeners. So drop me a line, the shortcoats at gmail.com. We'll uh, definitely play your, your perspective on the show in a future episode. And that would be great. Jeff, thanks for uh, producing this episode. Happy to do it. Ananya, AJ, Riley, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Dave. And what kind of off-target effect would I have if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making us part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Hitler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, short coats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use But the bottom line is that, for what it's worth, I see you, I know you're out there, I wish I could do more. Maybe I can, in ways that I don't understand yet or know about, but I see you, and I'm glad you're here, and other people are too. This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com.